Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about This Is Worth Fighting For. First, briefly, the song, and then the concept. Lyrics by Sam H. Stepped for the song This Is Worth Fighting For go like this. I saw a peaceful old valley with a carpet of corn for a floor, and I heard a voice within me whisper, This is worth fighting for. I saw a little old cabin and the river that flowed by the door, and I heard a voice within me whisper, This is worth fighting for. Didn't I build that cabin? Didn't I plant that corn? Didn't my folks before me fight for this country before I was born? I gathered my loved ones around me, and I gazed at each face I adore. Then I heard a voice within me thunder, This is worth fighting for. I first encountered this song being sung by the Ink Spots in a collection of various artists called The War Years. It came out in 1942 in a film called When Johnny Comes Marching Home, part of a series of universal musical comedies that were made and released during World War II. So if I assume, and it is for me just an assumption, that the song was written at the same time for the same period, this is literally a song inspired by the challenge facing and the United States and other nations during World War II, and asking the question, and it's a question I've asked on previous inappropriate conversations. There's one back there called Fighting to End Fighting, where I really make some fairly controversial claims about the necessity of using extreme weaponry at the end of World War II. There are things worth fighting for, and pacifism in and of itself is not going to be an answer, because you can only turn a cheek you have. You can only you know, earn the credit for being somebody who follows Jesus's instruction to turn the other cheek if you are capable first of defending yourself. It would just be an empty gesture if I said, well, I am not going to fight back at a time when I was incapable of doing so. You have to be capable of doing so. And the United States in 1942, or even before, coming off a depression from the decade before, not necessarily as threatening to an enemy like Hitler as we would be today, for example. And yet, one of the things that I think marshaled the resources of lots of people across every single economic spectrum and across truly all genders in terms of you know, the Rosie the Riveter image that we have in our head when it comes to defending a nation during time of war and the fact that the person who's working in the factory or the person who's, frankly, teaching people how to be pilots or how to be doctors become in some ways part of the war effort. It's ironic to me that we're now talking about war effort in uh, looking back on that so-called great generation and some of the art of the time. Now, I'm not sure that this movie, When Johnny Comes Marching Home, would be described today as art. But I think taken in the context of Hollywood during wartime probably does hold up. The reviews are mixed, but the reviews are not you know, negative. Uh, it seems like the, the film was well received, to put it that way. I'm not sure whether I would have reacted the same way to the song This Is Worth Fighting For if I had not heard it as an adult. You know, when I was a kid, I'm sure, well, I, I never had it. Uh, my parents didn't have an Ink Spots album with that song on it. I never had an Ink Spots CD with that song on it, despite the fact that I have more than one. But I think that being someone who now has kids that are grown, and during the time that I probably encountered this song a decade ago, it would have been a song that I would have heard from the perspective of, you know, things that you as a, as a father, as a parent, are protecting. And that's certainly the focus of the song itself. When I make the drive, as I do from time to time, through Pennsylvania on the way to Washington, D.C., and you take that southern jaunt, leaving the Pennsylvania Turnpike and heading toward Maryland, there are some rolling hills with a very deep valley. The highway is well above the valley below. And I see some of the very green grass and the traditional sort of white church house kind of images that are down that are down there below the road it's this song that i think of that the imagery that stepped put into his lyric about a little old cabin with a river that flows past 
and uh, valley with corn that sort of drapes across it like a carpet. That sort of image makes me think of even the most modest means, the most rural parts of the country stood up to fight. Now, the other reason that I think of the song, This Is Worth Fighting For, is more the concept. The, the title itself, I think, conveys perfectly this idea that we as Americans here in the late part of June in 2013 have seen some staggering examples of things worth fighting for. And to me, it's interesting that as a political moderate, not a disinterested centrist, but a radical moderate engaged in issues, there are certain issues where I land what may be considered by some to be you know, firmly on the liberal side of the political spectrum. And there are other issues where I would land more firmly on the conservative side of the spectrum. It's just that I think that right now, we are a country that has been at war for so long that most of us take for granted. It reminds me of the Star Trek episode the original series Star Trek episode, A Taste of Armageddon, where we've been at war now for the longest continuous period at any time in our nation's history. If you go back to the moment where we declared that there was a war on terror and that we were going to fight it, it is longer than World War II. It is longer than our experience in Vietnam, at least the legally recognized experience in Vietnam. It is longer, obviously, than the Revolution or the Civil War. We have been at war now for longer than we can ever remember. But the problem is that we have distanced ourselves from the experience of war. We are not a country marshalling our resources together and teaming up and saying, hey, this is worth fighting for. I'm going to not change the tires on my car as often as I used to because the nation so desperately needs rubber. And I'm going to come up with substitutes for things like milk and butter to make sure that the resources are available to take care of the needs of our military. We don't think that way anymore. It's almost like that Star Trek episode where the casualties were just calculated on computers and people went into suicide machines to do their due diligence because in that episode, the two planets at war with each other had found a way to eliminate all the destruction. They'd gone even a step further than the concept behind the development of the neutron bomb, all the way to the idea of not dropping bombs at all, just playing simulated computer games and then informing who had quote unquote died and therefore who had to go into a suicide machine. The people in those societies were so far removed from war that short of the suicide process that was going on, there was no sense of urgency to change it. The water wasn't being poisoned by devastation, by collapsed buildings. The air wasn't being filled with clouds of smoke from, from frankly, from bomb material, but also from the dust that comes up when a building does collapse. They'd, they'd insulated themselves from all that and were therefore able to carry on perpetual war for generations. So it's ironic that I'm talking about a song that looks back at World War II, summoning the patriotism of a nation needing to fight a war against a clear evil and fight it well and fight it urgently. When we are now as a country, if I were speaking solely to Americans, talking to a group of people who don't have that sense of urgency, who are pretty comfortable, I think, uh, it may be comfortable insults some people, maybe some people are really aggravated about it, but we're more comfortable than we would have been in 1968 about a war in Vietnam. We are willing to put up with a lot more because it doesn't touch us as directly as it did in the 1940s when we had to remind ourselves that some things were worth fighting for. So as a conservative, I might speak more passionately about that side of the spectrum if we weren't in this messy, little, indifferent, political, endless war scenario, I could get passionate about how to fight a war and how to end it, if there was any way to conceive of how to end it. On the other side, though, when we look at the war that we seem to be declaring against many of our own citizens, this has been a banner week when it comes to looking at examples of what it means to say, hey, this is worth fighting for. In the state of Texas, a state senator named Wendy Davis stood not just figuratively, but literally, for something like 13 hours, to engage in continuous filibuster to stop a bill that would have removed medical services from a huge portion of the state, that would have, in essence, created an underground trafficking for reproductive health services in the state of Texas. And rather than just letting that happen, letting the parliamentary procedure of a majority of, in this case, Republicans in Texas, rule the day, she chose to engage in the tactics which are available in the rules of order that everyone agrees to and literally stand. No food, no water, 
no restroom breaks, no chair to lean on, much less sit on, and continuously speak about the issue. Now, of course, she had help. She had gathered resources prior to that, as you would if you were preparing even for a 15-minute speech, much less, much less a 15-hour speech or something that's closer to that than it is to nothing. And she had perhaps examples from all over the country of people who had shared their stories of what it means if you do not have these services available. What kind of mistakes do young girls make, for example, when they don't get the information because they can't have the information? And I've spoken about this before. I won't take any time now to get into the politics behind it. But what I want to do is, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, even if you completely disagree with everything that Wendy Davis said in her speech, it was a Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment to refer to a Frank Capra film, again, from back in the 40s and from when it was released. Somebody willing to put their, their whole political capital on the line, to put their chips in, and to say, no, I'm going to do the unthinkable or the unimaginable because this is worth fighting for. So from my perspective, we owe Wendy Davis a huge thank you. You owe Wendy Davis a huge thank you, even if you're a politically conservative, activistic pro-lifer, because for the first time in a long time, somebody in this country put all their chips in, stood up and said, not on my watch. That's refreshing, even if they disagree with you, because, again, we are at a nation who has been at war since 2001, and none of us even seem to notice. So in this case... On this other issue, this question of access to public health services and the power politics behind the abortion issue, somebody stood up, and that's to be applauded. The other thing that happened that was, you know, of course, to me, this is worth fighting for a moment this week, were the Supreme Court rulings. Three of them, again, I'm not going to go into the politics. One of them, which history may remember as a good thing, where the Supreme Court turned to the U.S. Congress and said, you're not doing your job. It's time to do your job. Here's a problem that we're only going to let you solve. Go figure out how to ensure voter access across this country. Although it could just as easily be remembered at the mo as the moment when the clock was turned back to 1950 or 1960 and voter access in this country became dodgy once again, where the states have now, those who are interested in playing politics with the electoral process, have been given a little bit of leeway, maybe enough rope to hang themselves, maybe just enough rope to hurt other people with in terms of finding creative ways to deny voter access to people who do not happen to represent the voting block of the majority in power. So that happened. And the other two were a moment in time when the Supreme Court said either we're not going to get involved in this issue. We don't think that somebody who doesn't have a claim against the state can force the state to, you know, the whole Prop 8 thing in California. Just the, the idea of saying, can outside special interests force the state to not change its mind about how to enforce policy? It was essentially what happened in that one. And the other one was the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, in the Defense of Marriage Act, you essentially had preemptive legislation Many, many years ago, Clinton was president back then, which Clinton, Bill Clinton signed, by the way, that was essentially going to insist that the federal government not in any way recognize any marriage that fell outside a certain gender normative paradigm. So now it's more relevant than it was then, because now you have states who have passed laws that have removed that gender criteria from the rules of marriage in those states. Call it a dozen states, but that the problem was that even if you were in a state where you were allowed to get married as two men or two women and not just a male and a female and you'd done everything right you'd followed all the procedures you'd signed all the paperwork everything was good and clean you're still going to run into trouble functioning in society because the federal government didn't have to recognize your marriage now to me the issue isn't over yet so i think the thing that i would say is that we're probably not done fighting about it and that's a good thing because it's still worth fighting for, no matter, no matter which side of the issue you're on. It's worth fighting over, I guess would be the way that I would put it. And by fighting, I mean it figuratively, with argument, with persuasion, with speech. Again, the Wendy Davis example. Better to fight with speech than to fight in some other way. Because we are still in a place where all states aren't equal. And states where significant news stories have appeared in the last few years of people being denied access to their loved ones 
because of no other reason than their gender or no other reason than that state not officially recognizing marriage, we're still in a place where that's you know, arguably true, that there's still more work that has to be done to where on paper, those states now have to recognize the marriage of people in other states. But what will really happen in the emergency room? What will really happen inside the insurance agent's office? What will really happen at the moment that a will and testament is read? To me, there's still open questions there. There was a case in the state of Missouri, suburban St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken, again, within the past year, where a young man on Facebook, a heterosexual man on Facebook, had written words that he felt were his own opinion about how important it should be for his state to rethink the rules they've got about the gender normative basis of marriage. And as a result of having written that, he was essentially kicked out of his church. Protestant church, small Protestant church from a denominational standard. And, you know, they first removed him from Sunday school because he couldn't, he shouldn't be allowed to teach kindergartners. And having lost the position as a kindergarten teacher and raising complaints about that, he, he was ultimately just removed from his church altogether. Now, at no point was he bringing up these issues in church and certainly not in that Sunday school class but only on Facebook. But the idea that he had a different opinion than some of the people in that church was enough for them to remove him. Again, this isn't a gay issue. This is essentially a civil rights question and a civil rights issue. And the persecution that you could cite and identify and tabulate doesn't just impact those people who speak their minds from uh, being gay people speaking about gay rights. It impacts people who are even heterosexual, raising questions and not necessarily knowing the answer. It is one of the reasons on inappropriate conversations, I'm actually somewhat careful to raise the questions that I do and to speak the opinions I do, by and large, from a religious perspective. Uh, this is something that I do that falls into the overall category, broadly grant you, but overall category of ministry. Therefore, anybody who wants to attack me based on questions I've raised or opinions I've offered must understand that they're doing so in a direct First Amendment sort of a challenge, that this is what I believe. It is faith-based, it is scripturally based, and it is executed on that, on that level. And therefore, anybody who has a strongly different opinion and would like to find some way to attack me in a parliamentary way or otherwise needs to take into account that it's my religion you're talking about. It's certainly not my lifestyle. Anybody who's listened to much of inappropriate conversations would know that to be true. So why stand up? Why make an argument? Because these things are worth fighting for. Now, just in case anyone's curious on this last issue that I referred to, where is the, where's the theological standard? Where do I stand from this perspective? Let me quote a Facebook post that bounced around a little bit here in the past week. As you might imagine, there's been a lot of chatter. As a Christian, I feel I am called to stand up for people who genuinely want to express love for and to others. I don't want to support people who either demand or defend the freedom to hate other people, including many people that they've never met, while resting on the mantle of privilege. We need to examine ourselves as Christians. I am, and the truth seems to be just as simple as what I've shared. When exactly does two people I've never met who love each other become a problem that I my society, my church, my government needs to step in and solve. Why does that become a problem we need to solve? And how is this a Christian issue? It's a Christian issue right here on this simple ground. I have named the Holy Spirit as a different drummer. I believe that there is a personal God. And I believe that if God, in the form of the Holy Spirit in particular, does not like something, that God will intervene. So I trust that the Lord will transform if not the uh, character of people, the behavior of people, if that much is truly at stake, I don't have to threaten them. I don't have to kidnap them, drive them several miles out of town, tie them to a fence post and beat them to death. I don't have to do that. Now, the specific example I'm referring to, the Matthew Shepard case, those actions weren't done in Jesus's name, but they were done all the same. And they were done with some people saying that, yeah, Jesus might be all right with it. <laughs> no. I disagree. Not only is it worth fighting for the rights of people who want nothing more than essentially to be treated the same as everybody else and thereby left alone, it's worth fighting for the rights of Jesus of Nazareth himself. It's about time somebody stood up for him 
every time people put hateful words in his mouth or ascribe their hateful actions to somehow being driven by him, inspired by him, or blessed by him. There's only one verse I'll share today. I've shared it before. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. The only place in the Bible that you hear the expression born that way, and Jesus is specifically in that verse referring to people who have no need to worry about marrying a woman because they were men who were not castrated, not taking a voluntary vow of celibacy because they're going out into missionary work, but simply uninterested in marrying women because they were born that way. This is, by my reckoning, the most direct, if not only, reference that Jesus makes to what we would call homosexual orientation. And if he didn't do it more explicitly, it's because no one he was speaking to would have understood the concept of sexual orientation. So, are those fighting words? Well, if so, it's because some things are worth fighting for. But the other thing I wanted to share today was that sometimes the things that are the most worth fighting for, or the things that are the most crucial in the fight, are more mundane than you could possibly believe. It could be as simple as the barking of a dog. It doesn't have to be a mansion. It could be a little old cabin in the middle of a cornfield. It could be something incredibly humble. And to tell that story, I need to try to remember, just right off the top of my head, how to tell it from the perspective of our different drummer, explorer, inspirational speaker, and entrepreneur, Jamie Clark. From his own website, www.jamieclark.com, it's Clark with an E. Jamie Clark is a Canadian adventurer, author, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and inspirational speaker. Based out of Calgary, Canada, Clark has summited Mount Everest twice, climbed the seven summits, and ridden camels across the empty quarter of Arabia. Jamie is in high demand as an inspirational speaker. He is aligned with a group, Kepler Speakers. Uh, you can find them at www.keplerspeakers.com. Just quickly looking at rates, it's not cheap. But I saw Clark with 2,000 other people in two consecutive years speaking for the same organization. Now imagine that for a second. It's a very unusual thing to attend on an annual basis for a few years in a row the same sort of seminar, to go to the same event, and to have an outsider invited in as a, as a motivational speaker. Repeating a motivational speaker is, at least in my experience, pretty unusual. And for the organization that I was aligned with at the time, very unusual. I've not seen it since that anyone has been brought back from an, for an encore-type performance. Now, this is a group that, you know, I, I've cited a few different drummers in the past who have speaking on their resume. Leo Bascalia recently, although I think of him as, as an educator and a speaker. Larry Wingett early on, but he calls himself a demotivational speaker, the opposite of what we traditionally think of when we think of motivational talks. Jim Valvano, of course, you know, at no point in any, would anyone have watched his development as a coach and said, you know, there's a great future motivational speaker, but his life course took some turns and that's where he ended up. And he still may be, of all these, one of my favorites. But Jamie Clark, I've heard two years in a row, speak two years in a row, and it impressed me two years in a row. Here's what the Kepler Speakers website says. Jamie Clark is not only an extreme adventurer, but one of the most gifted storytellers on the speaking circuit today. His pursuit of Mount Everest, the Seven Summits, and the Arabian Desert epitomizes human perseverance, and he shares tales of adventure and an enduring message with audiences around the world. In 1997, after two previous attempts to reach its peak, Clark summited Everest, but this was only the beginning of his journeys. In 1999, he successfully crossed the Arabian Desert, the most dangerous in the world, becoming the first Westerner to do so in 50 years. It has more to say, but to me, I like that it summarizes there, because I saw him speak in consecutive years about those two things, Everest first, the Arabian Desert second. And I'm going to spend probably the balance of this show talking not about his successful trips to the top of Mount Everest, but in particular about an unsuccessful one. Because to me, inside the story of his unsuccessful journey is the answer to the question, what does it mean when we say something is worth fighting for? And how do you know what it's worth? 
How do you measure that? I think Jamie Clark, wittingly or unwittingly, truth be known, has provided some answers. Because after that first time I heard him speak, I was impressed enough by what I heard that I wouldn't share it with church. As the speaker in church that Sunday, it was perhaps the least scripture-oriented message I've ever delivered in that sort of sermon spot. But I think when you hear the story, I think you'll understand kind of how it calls us back to the place of saying, hey, this can really be simple. You know, you've got a couple of people who love each other. You've got a lot of people who think that the world should hate them. Which one are you going to stand up for? It's almost really that simple. Before I go there, though, just a little bit of biographical information. Jamie Clark grew up in Calgary, Canada, in a family that loved to travel And uh, with the nearby Rocky Mountains, he had to hike and ski and and otherwise adventure. From a young age, he would come along on those adventures, sometimes pulled in a sled by the family's two Malamutes, quoting from his biography on the website, one of my earliest memories of the mountains is sitting in a sled, all bundled up in a sleeping bag, being pulled by our dog Nanook on a hike into Shadow Lake. Clark remembers hiking in his telemark boots as a child because children's hiking boots were not available. As a teenager, Clark sought out the mountains to ski up and down and was just looking for good terrain to get out and have fun. He started reading books about outdoor adventures, and eventually Mount Everest captured his imagination. In 1991, Jamie traveled to Mount Everest with the Canadian expedition Climb for Hope, sponsored by Cathay Pacific, AG Foods, and Midland Communications. A team of 21 members climbed to the north side of the mountain, making it over 25,000 feet before bad weather forced them to turn back. Upon his return to Canada, Clark immediately began planning and fundraising his return to Everest. The 1994 Lungs Without Limits expedition was for the Alberta chapter of the Canadian Lung Association, sponsored by Emergo Group of Calgary and Sun Ice Clothing. Clark spent the years leading up to the expedition fundraising by speaking to students about his previous trip to Everest. The North American team of 14 climbed the north route, making it within 150 meters of the summit before poor weather and altitude sickness forced them to descend. Following his return from the 1994 expedition, Clark once again began planning and fundraising to return to Mount Everest. The 1997 edition was sponsored by Collier's and Lotus Notes IBM. A team of about a dozen approached from the south side of Everest and summited it on May 23, 1997. If I can get this right from memory, the one I want to speak about is the middle expedition, although I may speak briefly about the one before it. And believe me when I tell you, I'm doing this from memory, I've got no notes, and if you're given the opportunity to hear Clark himself, do not hesitate. I have gone to a seminar a year sometimes more, at least on average, for more than a decade now. And of all the people that I've heard speak, uh, if I was asked to measure by the standard of which one of those was motivational, which one of those changed your worldview, not just in business, because you're going there from a business perspective and thinking like a business person, but in your personal life, in your religious life, in your family life, number one by a mile is Jamie Clark. And again, not for his success, but specifically for a story of failure. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, can get Wilson, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. I cannot speak to the book Above All Else or Everest to Arabia. Clark has written at least two books. I have seen one of the films, though, related to the trip to Everest. And again, it didn't cover the material that I was interested in because the the material I was interested in was the interpersonal story. You're making a, a documentary about somebody climbing to Mount Everest it's almost inherently going to be focused on things like the weather and the terrain and the equipment. But to me, the weather and the terrain and the equipment are not what his story is really all about. 
with one, perhaps one exception. And that piece of equipment, of course, wasn't anything as high tech as, you know, communications equipment. I'll get to that in a minute. No, the piece of equipment that I that I first kind of turned a corner with listening to him speak as a speaker and said, I'm going to listen to everything else this guy has to say with a new set of ears, because the equipment that he spoke about was toilet paper. From Clark's perspective, one of those trips to Mount Everest failed for no other reason than they ran out of toilet paper. Now, of course, we've heard the official news reports that say the idea it's altitude sickness or it's weather, uh, other logistical concerns crept in. But one of the things that slowed them down, that made them vulnerable to weather, that ate up their progress and took miles away from them along the way, because uh, along the way, whether it be local food or weather conditions or other things, they found that they had some bathroom circumstances, which were not ideal, and were burning through that part of their supplies faster than anything else. And recapping that trip to Everest and arguing over what went wrong and trying as a leader of a group to motivate people and avoid the inevitable finger pointing where some people felt like, well, we should have done this better or somebody dropped the ball over there. He, he literally, according to the story, pulled out a roll of toilet paper, stuck it on top of the, the speaker's podium, interrupted all the bickering and said, this is why we didn't make it. That, to me, reminded me that sometimes the problems that you encounter can be as low-tech or as simple as what do you do if you're dealing with dysentery-type you know, symptoms and you don't have, well, equipment. Sometimes equipment can be as simple as just yeah, an extra roll of toilet paper. To me, though, the equipment that mattered most and the one I want to speak to was telecommunications equipment. And we probably take this for granted today, and we shouldn't. Because even when I was hearing this many years ago, 79 years ago, I was struck by the fact that it just never occurs to you that if somebody is more than halfway up Mount Everest, will cellular technology in the late 1990s or the you know, right in that ballpark, would it really be good enough to allow you to patch in via some combination of cell phone and shortwave and walkie-talkie to allow somebody who's 150 meters from the top of Mount Everest to speak to his wife and children at home. And that's exactly what happened. You see, there's a moment, and Clark was really open about this, and I thought that it was a good thing and a good reminder. When you start talking to people who are entrepreneurs and thinking about taking risks, when do you understand enough of what the risk is to make the right call about when to pull back, when to retreat, when to set your pride aside and say, this isn't going to work. Clark was lower on the mountain in a communications station, talking with a friend of his, somebody he knew well, he, he knew the family, who was on the mountain, dealing with altitude sickness, essentially paralyzed, weather conditions are in the way, but it's only a football field or so to go to get to the summit. And the problem that this climber, I won't identify my name because I don't remember. <laughs> the problem this climber had was he had enough juice left in him, maybe, to get to the top of the mountain. But doing so was going to guarantee that he did not have the strength, the energy, and the resolve to get back. So you're literally, in an, and again, as an entrepreneur or as an expeditionist or an explorer, sitting there making the decision that you can still achieve your goal if you're willing to die for it. And you've made all these other sacrifices along the way that I'm sure like almost everyone else on the expedition promises were made to people back home. And when Clark and others were unable to talk this person into turning around and coming back, they'd reached a place where they were also not getting good communication from him at all, that he was not turning around and coming back. He also wasn't moving forward. He was doing perhaps the most dangerous thing he could be doing and in not moving at all. And I think Clark made the decision that, hey, we're calling this one. This one's already done. Now the priority becomes saving the life of our friend, getting him off this mountain. Now, it kind of goes without saying that if I was going to line up all the things that I've spoken about today and say which one of those is most worth fighting for, this is the first one that comes anywhere near to the fighting of World War II. This is a big deal. This is a moment of life and death where Clark is literally trying to speak to a friend who's unresponsive. And at the same time, dialing up his family back home. Interestingly, there's a huge example of what human nature is really all about. Maybe it's the stages of death and dying. 
Maybe it's the dynamics of a family life. I'm not sure how exactly to describe it. But that telephone conversation where a call back to Canada was being patched in at a lower communications station on the way up the mountain of Everest and then patched in through walkie-talkie or some other means to where the man, standing indecisively, frozen in both a figurative and perhaps even beginning to be a literal way, in that spot near the summit, could hear his family talk. So what did he hear? He hears from his wife, anger and disappointment. You made some promises to me. What in the hell are you doing? You said you'd do this. You're not doing it. Have you forgotten your family? Have you forgotten your friend? Just that sort of a lot of you talk, a lot of you, you, you sort of speak. I remember having a conversation online a while back with with three church friends. We all go to different churches, but we know each other through parachurch activities where somebody was putting up one of those posts. We've seen so many of them, too many of them lately, that basically assumes that everybody who's unemployed and on welfare is some sort of freeloader and that they're betraying our country. And the post was written by this woman, but she shared it. And it was about, you know, you this, you this, you know, you you should stop being a freeloader. You should get to work. You you should be more patriotic, that sort of thing. And I called her on it. So it was completely inappropriate. As a Christian, that's not the attitude that we should have. And a mutual friend of ours jumped in and he stepped to her defense and he said, "I, I needed to settle down, that I need to remember she didn't write it, that these political conversations never get anywhere. And what I, all I said was, listen, If we're going to do it Jesus's way, it's going to have a lot more we and a lot more I and a lot less you in it. It's not going to be the voice of the accuser. That's not who we want to be. That's not how it works. That example doesn't live in the Gospels. And that turned out to be the last word. (laughs) But in this case, he's patched into his wife at home. The hope is that she can help his friends talk him off the mountain because he's not moving. And he wasn't moving from the conversation with his wife. He was getting a fair amount of accusation and a fair amount of anger, and perhaps a lot of it justified. It's hard to say. I've never been 150 meters from the summit of Mount Everest. I'm not sure how good my judgment would be at the time either. I really don't like cold weather. I'm not sure how effective I would be. But he was still frozen in his place. So they put the older daughter, you know, I'm assuming midway through uh, elementary school, maybe late in elementary school, capable of understanding everything that was going on, knew that her daddy was gone, knew that what he was doing was dangerous, knew that it was going to be really cool if he succeeded. But having seen her mother's anger and having been given the phone, because I think Jamie probably told the wife, you're not helping, give the phone to one of your daughters. But by the time that all transpires, the older daughter has the phone in her hands. She is absolutely terrified. So instead of getting inspirational talk to help him find the strength and the courage and the resolve to climb back down that mountain, all he has is an hysterically frightened and crying daughter. Also, not motivational. Now, I don't want to imply in any way that this man had some sort of a scale in his mind where he was not putting his wife at the top of his his relationship list, as he probably should. No circumstances were that he was not failing to respond to his wife. He was failing to respond to her communication. I don't think he was playing favorites with his daughters by responding, not responding to this older one. It was simply, he was unable to respond to her communication. They were in these stages of fear and denial and anger. They were nowhere near accepting of the fact that he might die in this situation and they weren't providing any motivation whatsoever. So in a moment of desperation, perhaps because Jamie thought of it, perhaps because the mother thought of it, perhaps the older daughter just didn't want to be on the phone anymore because her father wasn't talking to her. And the more and more unresponsive he was, where the wife's fear turned into anger, her fear turned into sadness. It wasn't working. At some point, they handed the phone to the younger daughter. And I don't know whether in kindergarten, first grade, whatever we're talking about, she was too young to know what was going on. Clearly, she wasn't clueless. Daddy was gone. He was gone on an expedition. Some of that had to be known. No, I think this is a classic younger sibling situation with a father who's been absent a lot, both preparing for a Mount Everest trip and actually having been gone for several days, maybe weeks on that trip. She was given the phone with a chance to talk to daddy. 
Mom was in no position to take the phone away from her. Her older sister had voluntarily given the phone to her. And Jamie, who was over on the other side of the world, was more than happy to keep her talking because it was her voice that inspired her father to turn around and begin walking back down the mountain. It took a very long time. One of the things that seeing a video on this will do for you is give you a good sense of just how long it takes to go not very far because of the ice, because of the snow, because of the cold, because of the conditions. That 150-meter you know, trip up to the summit would have killed him because it would have been dark by the time he turned to come back down. The weather would have caught up to him. It would have been too foreboding because you can't just sit on your butt and slide down. You know, you can't just you know, pull a James Bond manufacture from skis, some skis out of, you know, nothing and ski down. It's a trudge. It's a journey. But all through this journey, the man was listening, still unresponsive, but listening to his daughter talk about nothing. Here's what I had for breakfast today, Daddy. I thought about having the Cheerios, but then I thought maybe I would go with the Fruit Loops because the Fruit Loops are far more flavorful. But then we almost ran out of milk. But luckily, because of the Fruit Loops, all the flavor gets into the milk, and the milk still tastes like Fruit Loops even after you – just on and on and on. What happened at the bus stop? Who did she sit next to on the bus? What did the teacher say? What did she have for lunch? Um, how long did it take to get that last hour done? What was she going to do after school tomorrow? She met a friend just on and on and on about from – you know, from the perspective of somebody who knew what was happening in the issue, she wasn't speaking about the story at all. It was Dadaism at its very best, totally non sequitur, completely unrelated. But he wasn't getting anybody angrily reminding him about promises he was no longer keeping. He wasn't put in a position where the last amount of energy he had to keep him alive might have to be used to tell his daughter goodbye. No, instead, the younger daughter, who perhaps more than anything else in the world, just wanted to talk, was talking. And for the first time, he was listening. He didn't listen to his friends at camp. He wasn't listening to the person standing next to him trying to get to the summit. He wasn't listening to his wife. He wasn't listening to the older daughter. He was listening to the younger daughter talk about nothing. Now, what does this tell us? What's the lesson that sometimes when we talk about something being worth fighting for, it doesn't have to be worth fighting for with an atomic bomb. It doesn't have to be about worth fighting for in a life or death situation. Sometimes the smallest decisions, the smallest moments of right and wrong can make the biggest difference in whether we succeed or not. This is an individual, and I, again, I don't know his name, I'm recounting a story. This is third-hand information. I probably am getting facts wrong. They're not my facts to begin with. But as I'm telling the story, this is someone who is dealing with essentially a suicidal moment, not a willful act of suicide, but a place where a temptation to go one step further had to be resisted because the one step further would guarantee you couldn't get back. And the indecision, the doubt, the weather conditions, the cold, the fear even, Put him in a spot where he really needed help getting off the mountain. Somebody had to literally talk him off the mountain, which is why Jamie had picked up the phone in the first place and talked to him. Wasn't getting an answer. But the person who talked him off the mountain was probably the least expected person of all the characters I've described. So I think we make a mistake when we look at things too politically, too strategically, and tell some people that they're not welcome to be part of the conversation because sometimes the example we need to see the words we need to hear come from the most unexpected source. I'm going to guess that a lot of the people who are most upset by the decision the Supreme court made regarding the defense of marriage act have not heard from homosexual couples. They simply don't know because they have not put themselves in a position to hear those voices. They have not set aside their privilege, their demand that things be my way long enough to humble themselves as Jesus would, you know, demonstrate over and over again in his ministry to listen to people. When this man listened to his daughter, he found the will to make a life-saving change for himself. We don't know what will happen 
if in the abortion debate that stormed over in Texas in recent days, we don't know what would happen if that was less about the actual politics of someone speaking and more about the actual human dignity of listening to what each other's words are. We need to find that out. We also need to find out what would happen if we asked ourselves the really tough question of saying, hey, how does it matter to my marriage if somebody across the street gets married in a way that I never would? We need to ask ourselves those questions because the fight that we need to be having together against the forces of evil that probably have brought us to a place where we're fighting with each other to begin with, well, it's never going to happen unless we marshal our resources. But remember, marshaling those resources isn't necessarily some grandiose act of political will. It might be just as simple as saying, hey, what did that couple across the street eat for breakfast today? Because we might find out that their day is just as mundane, just as boring, just as simple as the kindergartner describing to her father halfway across the world what she ate for breakfast and who she sat next to on the bus. And the most important thing to me is we might just find out that all of us have basically the same thing for breakfast and have very similar experiences when we get on the bus and capturing that common humanity and figuring out how to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. I don't have a uterus, so I need to walk in the shoes of a woman who might have a major medical problem, who might have a major you know, domestic violence problem. I need to walk in her shoes before I decide what medical care she ought to be enabled to have, especially when people who are willing to provide that medical care are already in place. And I'm just looking at finding a way to shut them down and make sure that they can't engage. These are things where we need to find out how to do it together. The most important thing we're fighting against is probably our own apathy. If you look at the Supreme Court ruling you know, regarding voting rights and you look at it from its most positive possible perspective, it appears that they may be turning to Congress and saying, get back to work, do what you're supposed to do, shut up and get your job done. Well, that would be a positive message because we haven't worked together for common ends as a country since 1996 or earlier. It has been so long that we've been engaged in figuring out who the next special prosecutor will be or figuring out who the next leak is going to be blamed on or figuring out what the next scandal is going to mean. It has been so long that we've been engaging in this type of politics. Most of us don't remember what it was like before. Some of us have been born into a world. If you're, if you were born in 2001 or later, you have never lived in the United States of America at a time when we weren't engaging in an international war on multiple fronts. And if you believe the news of the day also coming in the month of June, an international war that spilled over into the government declaring war on its own citizens. When you charge somebody like an Edward Snowden, with the Espionage Act, because he told the American people what the government was doing to spy on them, you're saying that he aided and abetted an enemy at a time of war. And in this case, if you went to the chalkboard and diagrammed the sentence and really engaged not just in a good understanding of history, but a good understanding of English grammar, the charges that the Obama administration is now trying to level against Snowden make the American people the enemy of the American government because this sedition act from 1917, 18 basically says it's not just that you're sharing information or that you're expressing dissent, but you're expressing dissent that aids the enemy. And the only person Snowden was aiding was the average United States citizen or the average Verizon customer who needed to know that the United States government was actually looking at their grocery lists, at their love notes, at their work calendar, at their personal calendar, that if this is an enemy situation, the government has just declared every single one of us to be the enemy. This is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for grocery lists. It's worth fighting for reminders that I'll be late getting home from work today, dear. It's the most mundane stuff available. But if nothing else from Jamie Clark's story should resonate with us, it's this reminder that sometimes the most mundane and innocent pieces of information, otherwise meaningless, otherwise unimportant, can be the difference between life and death. And in this case, the government doesn't have to intervene. 
and the government didn't need to intervene because the reason that mundane information carried so much power was because the relationship between the daughter and her father. Everything I've spoken about in this episode has been relationship. Relationships of this team climbing up this mountain, but also the relationship between two people who pledge their love to each other and just want to do so legally. The relationship of a woman and her doctor and her husband and her kids and her parents making decisions without the government stepping in and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not a decision you're allowed to consider, or that's not the way you need to get it done. Or the decision of a citizen of the United States to say, hey, I thought you told the United States Congress that we were not engaging in this type of internal domestic espionage. Since when are you an enemy of the state for calling out to the United States Congress that somebody has committed perjury in front of them? I remember a time not too long ago when congressional Republicans were obsessed with perjury, where the idea that somebody would go in front of the U.S. Senate and give false testimony and answer questions intentionally falsely before the U.S. Senate was the kind of thing we'd impeach a president over. Now, it seems like it's not only not the kind of thing we would impeach a president over ever, it's the kind of thing where we would actually threaten to imprison, intimidate, perhaps even kill somebody who would dare to call such a crime to our attention. If an act of treason has been committed in that situation, it's been committed by somebody who stood up in an official capacity and lied to the U.S. Congress, who lied to our government, who lied to every single one of us, if our government is still of the people, by the people, and for the people. As the Jamie Clark story illustrates, people matter. If you take people out of it, you don't get back off the mountain. A show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet. And somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi Scheme of Podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So, what are we fighting about this time, Dan? Best sci fi movie of all time, best token minority, best animated TV series. Listen. Inappropriate Conversations is available on Stitcher, Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. It's one of many shows available there, and it's one of the ways that I listen to some content exclusively. Inappropriate Conversations can be reached on the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I'm available at Twitter at IC underscore Greg. There's a Facebook page listed as a cause for Inappropriate Conversations. And if you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be also be reached via email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.